continues to be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Father, we thank you, Lord God, that we are living in an hour, Lord God, where you are pouring into your people your word. Father, we know we need it. We know, Lord God, that in perilous times, Lord God, that we've got to have the, the assurance, Lord God, the knowledge of your word, Lord God. And so, Father, tonight we're just asking you, Lord God, to open our hearts and our minds, Lord God, to be able to hear and to receive of you. Father, even as the word is declared, Lord God, in the, in the revelation, it says those that have eyes to see, let them see, to hear, let them hear. Lord God, we need eyes, Lord God, devoid of any obstruction, Lord God, ears, Lord God, unplugged, unstopped. Lord God, able to hear, Lord God, and be sensitive to that still small voice. So that's what we're asking tonight as we come into this place, Lord God, to come and fill us. Lord God, give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation, Lord God. We need you, Lord God. We just want that word, Lord God, not to just go in and come right back out. But Father, we're asking, Lord God, that your word tonight, Father, we find residence in us, Lord God, we find a, a place, Lord God, cultivated and ready, Lord God, to, to grow and to produce much fruit. Father, we just submit our hearts and minds to you tonight. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Yeah, once again, thank you guys for coming out tonight uh, as we continue our study in the epistle of 1 John. Any, anybody been enjoying this? Oh, yes. yes, yes anybody yes. not been? We'll pray for you. <laughs> it is, it's good stuff. You know, it, it really is. And you know, when you, you we, I've said it for years, when you get into the Word, the Word gets into you. And it, and it doesn't just change you. Uh, in regards to information, it changes you in regards to intimacy. You know him. You know what the expectancy that he has for you in his words. So, um, man, I've been chewing on that word for years and years and years. And it's, it's like Campbell's soup. It's still good. You know what I'm talking about. And, and the thing about those unsearchable riches of God is the deeper you go, the deeper it is. Yes. And so, you know, you'll read something time and time again. You'll see it again for the thousandth time. You're like, my goodness. My goodness, where was that gem hidden all that time? And so as we're going through this this word, it's it's, it's really powerful. You know, I, I was thinking today about Romans one sixteen that you know that we're not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, not ashamed because we have something that separates us and and differentiates us because it's the power of God unto salvation to all those that believe. You know, folks, there's a, there's a power in the revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, he came as that, that word made flesh. He came and, and brought that. Then we have this word, this logos tonight, that we read the word. But when that word becomes alive in our hearts and minds, it becomes rhema. It becomes life to us. And can you imagine just having that word is just strictly information to you? You know, we meet people on the streets, uh, not just in this city, but elsewhere we've met for years and years and years. And they may have, they might be able to regurgitate something that they've taken in just by rote or by memorization. And there's a deadness to them. Because it's never become life. It's still just printed words on a page rather than something that becomes our sustenance. And so allow that word to become your sustenance, the thing that, that builds you up. We were talking last week uh, about uh, chapter 2 and verse 1. You see just how much there is in that that we pass over. You know, you, we skip words like advocate in verse 2 and propitiation. And you just, you, you just pass them by. And you don't realize the, the, the message and the depth and the volume that is just right there in that scripture. So we're going to continue in our study tonight. And I want to read, uh, we're in chapter 2, uh, verse 1 and 2. I believe this is what, Caprice, week 12. Yes. Uh, I believe it is week 12 we're on. So 12 weeks of just uh, really exploring the word of God and allowing the word to become real to us. But here's what it says in the epistle of 1 John, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. An answer, a letter that really answered the problem with the, uh, the presence of those early Gnostics, those that, 
that, that, that really, uh, we, we call it watered-down Christianity today. We call it those that uh, wide gate. We have all kinds of terminology, but Gnostics were those that, 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 that said, listen, you know what, Jesus died to this, but you can continue to live any way you want to. You know what, Jesus died to set us free from sin, not to set us free so we can continue in sin. He unlocked the door, and he escorted us out by the blood of Jesus. Amen? And so here's what he said in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He said, my little children, he said, these things are right to you that you sin not, and you remember, and if, or if you fall into that conditional possibility, he said, if any man sins, we have an advocate. We have that paraclete. We have that one that, that speaks on our behalf with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. In verse 2, he said, he is that propitiation. He's that one that bore that press of the weight for us, and for not just our sins, uh, but for the sins of the whole world. Folks, last week we focused primarily on that issue of the subject of Jesus, the propitiation for our sins. And you know, you, you run into places in Scripture like that sometimes that just bring you to a screeching halt. You know, for me, I look at that because the, it's the, the summarization of the cross is in that, that teaching and that doctrine and that, that revelation of propitiation. And you know, when you, when you run into the cross, everything changes because it, it, it's a game changer. That's why it's such an offense. You know, the preaching of the, the cross is to those that perish. It's foolishness. In other words, it drives a man, but the unto us which are saved, it's the power of God. The power of God is revealed in the cross because the power of God was manifested in the cross and he laid his life down. The power of God was, was summarized and demonstrated that God loved us so much that he did not think it robbery. He found himself just made a little bit lower than the angels, but he offered himself that substitutionary uh, a sacrifice for us on the cross of Calvary. That's the power of God. The power of God is, is revealed in the love of God. You know, I mentioned last week that, 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 that uh, God is not defined by, by love, that love is defined by God. And so you can't say, well, God, I, if he loved me, then you to do this. And I, I brought up the point that you know, God's love is not defined by our response to chemotherapy. God's love is not defined by our, our attitude towards Hurricane Katrina. God's love is not uh, uh, determined by whether or not someone survives a high-speed car crash or something of that nature. God's love is summarized in what he did upon the cross of Calvary. And so as we see him being that propitiation for our sins, and last week we really kind of ran out of time before we could really hit on that, that final statement of that verse in verse 2. And, you know, I, I believe we're going to have any, any honest discussion on this epistle. We have to cover this. But here's what he said in the second portion of verse 2. He said he is the propitiation for our sins, but not our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I want to say that again. Not only us, but also for the sins of the whole world. Folks, there's a few things that we really need to understand in this passage to, to kind of avoid some deviations that have slipped in to, I'll just call it Christian dome. I'm not going to call it Christianity because there's only one Christianity in Christ that's the center. The rest is just another or a false gospel. We'll call it Christian dumb. And, and I don't mean D-U-M-B, D-O-M. In other words, those things that would put their name under the name and the guise of Christianity. But there's some, some things we, you've got to understand when you see a verse like that. Otherwise, you've got, some, you've got these, these, these devil-following, uh, antichrist spirit people that will extract stuff out of, out of passages. You'll, you'll see it. You've heard it. You've had it happen to you. Well, what about this? And, and you know what? Unless you study to show yourself approved, you, you, you'll you be a watchman, but you'll, you'll be made ashamed. You say, well, I just really don't know about that. Because they'll extract stuff like this out of context. And if something's out of context, what's it called? It's called pretext. 
and it, and it leaves its original meaning. So we, we spent a couple weeks just talking about, let's get back to the source, back to the origin. And so a couple of things we need to look at. Number one, the reason we need to really look at that, the sins of the whole world, is uh, what many have done is they've taken just that verse themselves and they've introduced something called universalism. Now, you know what universalism, right, is? You know, basically universalism just says that, you know, God has, has many manifestations. You know what, if you want to call him Jesus, if you want to call him Jehovah, if you want to call him Allah, if you want to call him Krishna, whatever you want to call him, you know what, just do your very best. And you know what, God is going to honor that. God's going to see fit to that. You know what, what's, what's amazing is how much universalism has found itself into the mainstream church without calling itself universalism. Because when you begin to try to pin somebody down on something, I remember years ago, Pastor Sam may remember this, I don't know if he was, he was in Florida at the time or was, was on a Raven Nation program, he saw it from a distance. But we had an atheist, a, a prominent atheist uh, that came in from, I think it was England where he was broadcasting that night, and we had a, a debate. And he was so used to Christians pulling their punches, so to speak, or being afraid to answer the hard questions. And so he wanted to question me on our live Raven Nation program, and so he asked me the question. He said, well, what about the Jews that don't accept Jesus? And without hesitation, I said, if they do not accept Jesus, they will spend eternity in hell. And he gasped because he wasn't ready for that answer. He thought I was going to provide another way for somebody else. But I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of God and the salvation, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. They had an opportunity. And so there's not universalism based upon some past creed or some past covenant. All of those things were done away with at the cross of Calvary and there became a fulfillment. There is only one way to God, and that is through his son, Jesus Christ. He made it so easy. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man cometh to the Father except by me. Not by being a good person, not by being well-intentioned. Why? Because there's a way that seems right to a man. There's religious uh, uh, declarations and all these things that seem right to them, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And so what it's done, it's introduced universalism. Well, the other things it's introduced into Christianity and really mainstreamism is this doctrine of inclusion. How many are familiar with that terminology, the doctrine of inclusion? How many are familiar with a, uh, a fellow, what was his name? He was out of Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, Carlton Pearson. You've been familiar with Carlton Pearson? Carlton Pearson, years ago, he... Uh, he pastored a church, I believe, of about 5,000 people, uh, Higher Dimensions Praise Center in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He was a former singer with the ORU, singers back years and years ago. He came up in that ministry. He was a bishop in some major charismatic type of organization. And, and all of these things, very, very, very prominent individual in, in Christianity. You'd see him on the covers of Christian magazines. You'd see him co-hosting on TBN. Then one day he came out and he had changed. And he adopted a doctrine of inclusion. But the way he came about this doctrine of inclusion, he said he was sitting there in his living room one day, and he had lost his, I couldn't remember if it was an accident or what it was, but he had some grandparents that were not Christians. And he sat there, and he said, he said I'm sitting there thinking and contemplating just how good of people my grandparents were. They didn't believe like I did. They weren't Christian people. They were just good, nice, moral people. And he said, I had to say to myself, and he said, I felt it in my heart, no good and loving God would have ever sent my grandparents to hell. And he said, I believe that God was just opening my eyes and saying that, listen, my, my love is so bigger than your understanding, that, that my love and my acceptance and my mercy is so much more than you can fathom. Folks, all that sounds sweet, all that sounds good, but that's a doctrine of devils. 
Because in my flesh, I don't care how many uh, charities I've given to, how many good things that I've done, how sweet I am, and how much dope I never did, or how much beer I never drank, or how many times I didn't cheat them all. All those things, none of those things matter. Why? Because in my flesh dwells no good thing, because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and regardless of how good I am, It'll never compare to the holiness and righteousness of God. It is black. It is filthy. It is a stench in the nostril of God. And so when we come to that point and we want to have this experiential Christianity, and we say, I've got to change what I believe. I've got to change who gets in based upon my experience. I said years ago when my, our son Jared was, was, was backslid between about 18 and 20 years old, had gone off into the world and, 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 and living in sin. And my mother was talking to me on the phone one day, just like a grandma does. And, you know, I probably... Be that way, maybe towards uh, towards Hannah Joy when she gets bigger, just always cutting her a little extra slack. But my 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 mother said about her grandson Jared. She said, "Listen, I'm gonna let you know. I'm, I'm really uh, I know you're worried about Jared." And I had to stop her in her tracks and said, "Mom, listen, I'm not worried about Jared." I said, "I pray for Jared." I said, "But if anybody needs to be worried, it needs to be him." I said, "Because if he dies in his state, I said he'll bust hell wide open." And I said, Mom, I know this isn't going to be good news to you. I said, but on that day, if we're standing before God and Jared has not accepted Christ Jesus, and he says, depart from me and cast him in the lake of fire, I'm going to say, blessed be in the name of the Lord. Why? Because as much as I love that boy, as much as I, I pray for him, as much as I want to see him go to heaven, my love for him will never and does never and could never compare to the love that I have towards God. Why? Because he loved me so much. He sent his son Jesus to die for me. I'm not going to put any God before him, whether that God has my last name or whether that God's my boy or anything else in my life. It's him, and above him there is none other. And the second I begin to elevate things to that place of adoration, I elevate things to that place, what happens? I allow the enemy to slip, slip in. Unawares. And so this doctrine of inclusion, so this Paul Pearson, obviously he was he was he was outed for this belief, and he ended up finding some 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 bedfellows in a in a pro-homosexual type of community that that uh, that ordained him, and now he's going on and preaching his doctrine of inclusion somewhere else. And so, you know, we see these things and we 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 look at this erroneous and really heretical teaching, and we ask ourselves, well, how does that stuff come in? And why is that stuff so bad? And, I'm glad you asked that question because I'm going to tell you. We, we see some verses and some terminology that have been introduced in these first, what, 11 verses going through the first 10 and the, 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 the first verse of chapter 2 that are some, some that really provide us some context in what we're going to look in tonight on this thing that slips people up. One of the words that he used in here was the blood of Jesus. You know what's interesting? We, we're Christian folks. We're church folks. We're we're blood-bought folks. We say stuff like that, thinking that everybody understands what we're talking about. And so we'll go out into a public place with, with folks going in. You know, it's the blood of the Lamb. And they're like, man, what's wrong with the people? They're, they're offering blood sacrifice. They don't understand those terminologies. Well, because when you're in the world, you don't understand what people's talking about. It's about the blood. It's about the blood. And they're like, well, where's the crypts at? Are they, they, you, you see what I'm saying? And so there's these terminologies that we use thinking that everybody knows what we're talking about. Well, they didn't know what he was talking about in, in 1 John chapter 1. He's talking about the blood of Jesus, this Lamb of God, this blood covenant. It was, it was a covenant that they understood was initiated by God, and it was the center, the very center, that blood covenant was the center of the Jewish faith. And so when they began to talk about the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world, they had context on that. And so this, this largely Jewish audience understood these terminologies that maybe a Gentile wouldn't. It was, the, it was the basis of their belief system. So 
Jesus came, we use words like scapegoat. You know, people use that now for some criminal or something like that. Well, you know, or, or somebody that gets a, a, a bum rap, they say, well, he was just the scapegoat. Well, folks, that comes from Jewish law. That comes from the law of the scapegoat that the priest would put his hands on, symbolizing that the sins of the people would put upon him, then they would release the goat out into the wilderness not to be retrieved. And so these terminologies that we throw out, they, they were very near and dear to these folks that were hearing this. Another two terminologies, I touched on them. One of them was advocate. You know, we, we hear that word advocate but, or, or word propitiation. How many times a week do you use that word in normal conversation? Hey, Brother Dave, man, how's that propitiation been working for you? You know, it's not, it's not a terminology that we use. And so as we talked about last week, when it's not something we use all the time, we don't grasp the depth of it. But we found out last week in, that, in our last week's study that propitiation is a lot more than just a word that causes you to say a lot of vowels and consonants ran together real quick. It's, the, it's that weightiness. It's a thing that he, he bore the sins of the whole world upon him. And he delivered us from this thing that we could not escape. It's the, if, if, if any among you are, are, are weary, heavy laden, it's the, the press of sin that was upon him. All the sins of the whole world, he bore them. He, he bore that reproach upon him. So you see the depth of those things as you look into them. And so they were recognized as legal terms that were associated with Jewish uh, feasts. As we've seen over these last few weeks, that their meaning just begins to give us a, a greater enlightenment. So here we go, and it says in verse 2, it says, He is the propitiation for our sins, not ours only, or like I said, primarily Jewish converts. And so I want to say that to you again. When John's writing this letter, primarily everyone that's coming to Christ at this time are Jewish converts. Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and began to preach. 3,000 people got saved. You know who those folks were? Jews. They were Jewish people. And so at the beginning, the first century church, as we read the scripture, most of the people got, that got saved were Jews and some Gentiles. Now what is it? Most of the people that get saved are Gentiles and a few Jews and a Muslim boy from uh, Palestine. So you see what I'm saying? It's, it's, it's been flipped upside down. And so we've got to get our mind and our thought in context so we can understand exactly what that audience was hearing at that particular time. Otherwise, what we talked about, people will hear something and they'll think, well, that, what does that mean? For instance, we talked about Revelation uh, 3.15 where he says, I would that you were hot or cold. You know, in our North American thinking, we think that hot means you're on fire for God and cold means you don't know anything. Well, that's us. Well, that's not what they spoke. It, hot and cold are both good. Lukewarm is bad. We discussed that a couple weeks ago. And so you've got to get your mind in the right component. And so he's the propitiation for us, but not ours only, our, our Jewish converts, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so what does it mean then for him to be the one that bore the sin of the whole world? Well, we know two things. We know it's not the doctrine of inclusion, right? We know it's just not everybody, just do your best, you'll get in. We know it's not universalism, just find you a God to follow, and as long as you follow him according to the practices that they do. So we, we know that's not the case. So what does it really mean for him to be the propitiation for our sins, and not only our sins, but for the sins of the whole world? Say again, the majority of converts were Jewish, and they had to be reminded that the covenant that had come to them through Abraham was extended to the Gentiles or the world at the cross of Calvary. And so when the Apostle John is saying this, he's saying, listen, I'm going to tell you something. He said, he did it for you. You understand what he meant. 
You, you understand the sacrifices in the, in, the, in the tabernacle of Moses. You understand the, the sacrifices and, and everything that goes into the temple. You understand those ordinances. But he said, I'm telling you something. He said, just because you understand them and, and it's something that's part of your heritage, what he did extends beyond that covenant that you had with Abraham. All of these people that you consider unclean, the Samaritans, the Greeks, all of these other folks, he said, listen, he did not just bear the sins of these good law-abiding Jews, but the filthy, heathen world, all of those things were levied and laid upon him. That's what he said to them. And so that world literally comes from that same word that we see in what? John 3.16. For God so loved, what? The world. And he gave his only begotten son. That's propitiation. That whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. He bore our sins, but not just ours. Not just us good law-abiding Jews. Not just us that grew up under the covenant. But for the sins of the whole world. That was the extension of the whosoever will. And so the Jewish people obviously had been initially chosen by God to be that first peculiar people. Now folks, we're what? We're a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation. We're a peculiar people. We've been called to, to show forth His, His goodness, His grace into, in a dying and, and darkened world. We, we've been given that. But before there was us, there was them. They were the ones that were set apart. They were the ones that, that he put a difference between the holy and the unholy to be that voice. And they dropped the ball. They rejected the very Messiah that came. Folks, hasn't the church done the same thing? That we were the one that were being set apart to be that voice, to be that mouthpiece, to be the one that proclaimed the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. They got so far away from a personal relationship with God they got so much into their religion, into the law, that when he showed, they showed up. When he showed up, they missed him. But first, think about it today. Jesus shows up. He shows up in the person of the Holy Spirit in our heart. And we get so caught up in what we're doing, we miss him. Why? Because we think that God has got to feel, be filled within some presupposition or some pre-described standard. He has to operate with those things. And wasn't that the trap that Peter found himself into? When he first said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and later on he rebuked Jesus, and Jesus said, listen, Peter, what just happened to you? He said, you're now more concerned with the things of men than you are the things of God. God, get behind me, Satan. Folks, listen, we've got to ask ourselves sometime, are we more concerned with the things of men, us as individuals, than the things of God? When we do that, we become a reproach. And we consider and call the blood of Jesus a common thing, and we tread it under our foot. So that, that peculiar people, they were the set-apart people that were designed and prescribed to, to bring about the ministry of reconciliation to the whole world. And see, the means that they had was different than our means. The means that God had given them and instituted with them to bring the, the world to repentance was something called the law. That's the tool that they had. They had a law that was so defined, it was so specific, it dictated the way they ate, the way they, they drank, it, it dictated the way they buried people, who they could touch, who they couldn't touch, what their response to sicknesses was. All these type of things were, 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 were established in the law. Why? To make people see them as different. Now, now folks, what's greater, the, the law of Christ or the, 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 the law of sin and death? The law of Christ. Under the law, he said, you shouldn't commit adultery. Under Christ, he says, if you look at a woman to lust after her with your eyes, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Under the law, he says, thou shalt not commit murder. He says, uh, under grace, he says, if you have unforgiveness towards a brother, 
Some of you guys in King James, it says in, in italics without cause. Italics means it wasn't there. He just said if you have anger against a brother, you commit an anger, a murder in your heart. And so the standard in Christ is so much higher even than the standard of the law. But the tool that they had to bring men to conviction was that thing called the law. And they demonstrated literally in their failure in that, the futility in attempting somehow to satisfy the righteousness of God's wrath through their own inability to adhere towards something that was a heavenly standard. They could not do it. He said, here's what you've got to do. They could not do it. As meek as Moses was, he could not do it. As, as, as great as David was, the man after God's own heart, he could not do it. Abraham couldn't do it. He, he made himself a liar on so many occasions. All these ones that tried to adhere to the, the principles of law, they found themselves constantly falling flat. And so here's the question. Here's the standard. A is the regeneration that comes through faith in the blood of Jesus. That's the game changer for us. And secondly, it's the indwelling and empowering presence of the Holy Spirit that's now within the life of the believer. That's the things that changes things from the law to grace. We've got the regeneration through the blood of Jesus. We don't do things different. We are different. I am a new creature in Christ Jesus. I don't act like a new creature. I'm a new creature because something has changed about not what I do, but who I am. And the person of the Holy Spirit, according to 1 Corinthians 3.16, now dwells inside of me. And I receive power, according to Acts 1 and 8, to be his witness, to, to die to who Troy Bond was, and to be alive in Christ. And so the things that I used to be and who I used to, what I used to do and the inclinations that I have, all of those things have been defeated by a law that was greater than the law that failed them. And once they, as Israel, though, rejected as a nation Jesus the Messiah, what it effectively did was halted their opportunity. Some of you guys that study prophecy or, or biblical eschatology, you're familiar with the 70 weeks of Daniel. And so when Israel, here's what, here's what these people heard in that verse. When they heard that he's not just a propitiation for you, but for the sins of the whole world, it began to bring about the fulfillment of all these things they'd heard all their lives. All the prophecies, all those things, all those ordinances, all those, uh, all those things that were far out there, that covenant, it all came to bear. And they said, listen, something just happened. Well, it has halted those 70 weeks of Daniel. Let me give you a, a brief explanation of Daniel 9, 21 through 27. You didn't realize there was prophecy in uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 or 3, did you? And here's what he said in Daniel 9, 21. He said, yeah, while I was speaking in prayer, even the man... Speaking of the angel Gabriel, he said, whom I've seen in the vision at the beginning, began uh, being caused to fly swiftly. He touched me about the time of the evening oblation. It says, and Gabriel informed me and talked to me and said, oh, Daniel, I now come forth to give you skill and understanding. I'm about to tell you something that's going to blow your mind. And he said, at the beginning of your supplications, the commandment did come forth. And he said, I'm come to I've come to show you. He said, for you're greatly beloved, therefore understand this matter, because I want you to consider what I'm about to tell you. He said in verse 24, Daniel chapter 9, he said, at the beginning of your supplications, the commandment came forth. Uh, jump down to 24. He said, 70 weeks are determined upon my people. Who were they? They were Jews. And upon the holy city. Now, I'm going to give you an A through F real quick. Write these things down as I say them. A was, here's the reason I'm giving it, to finish the transgression. B, to make an end to sin. C, to make reconciliation for iniquity. You can get them right out of that verse. D, to, be, to bring an everlasting righteousness. E, 
to stand up, to seal up the vision of prophecy, and if, to anoint the most holy. And so he said, oh, listen, I'm giving you something. This is the fulfillment that we're going to get to see right there in 1 John chapter 2, and verse 2 and 3. He says, finish the transgression. In other words, the law came that sin might abound. He said, I'm, I'm giving you something. Folks, listen, when these people in 1 John heard that, they understood, listen, now we know why the law came. That word, word uh, to finish the transgression, finish literally means it's kala in the, in the Hebrew, and it means to restrain. There was a restraint. How many of you, when you're driving down the highway and you're running just a little bit, little bit above what that sign said, you, you see that black and white sitting on the, 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 the side of the road and you just immediately touch your brakes? Anybody do that? Some of y'all don't speed. Some of you just hit pedals and belts if I'm a good ticket. Just make it good. What happens? The knowledge of the law now becomes your restraint. Things that you may do. Now, how many of you, even when you're not speeding, you see a police officer and you slow down? Or if you're in a 35 and the police officer's running 25, you're going to run 24. You're thinking, well, uh, he'll, he'll, he'll get me for something. You always find yourself dropping back, and that really makes him curious. Why, why, are they, why are they driving so slow? But folks, that's what the law was sent to do, was to be that restraint, to hold people back. So he says, listen, I'm, I'm going to do something. I'm going to give you these, these 70 weeks to do something, to, 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 to bring the law that sin might abound, that it might be restrained, that you might be able to see it. The second thing was to make an end to sin, or to eliminate a failed standard. And so before the law came, there was no standard. Why? Because where there's no law, there's no sin. There's no transgression. And so if I don't know something's wrong, you say, well, I didn't know it. And so what did God do? He came and brought these, this, this, this volume of the law through the Ten Commandments and through the law of Moses. And it says, listen, you're never going to be able to say you didn't know it was because there's volume after volume, all these laws that have been given to you that show that these standards and these requirements. And so it was given. They had that time to eliminate the, the, the failed standard of having no law and no, uh, uh, no point of, of reference. The third thing was to make reconciliation for iniquity or atone for sin, thus stripping the sin nature of its dominance. Folks, that's really what he did for us upon the cross, which was prophesied through the law. He wanted to strip us or strip the dominance of the sin nature. Folks, you remember when you were lost? Sin dominated you. It was easy to sin, wasn't it? But once Christ came, that propitiation, for not just for us, but the sins of the whole world, he, he stripped away the dominance. He stripped away that thing which we had no hope. That thing that said to us, in your flesh dwells no good thing. There's no way you can do it. Try as hard as you want to. You're never going to measure up the things that I want to do. Isn't that what Paul the Apostle said in, in, in Romans chapter 7? The things that I said I was going to do when I was under the law, I didn't do them. He said, the things that I said I wouldn't do, I ended up doing them. I was just on the law. I was very religious, but it did not have power to change who I am. Oh, wretched man that I am. I'm wretched even though I'm trying to walk up to a prescribed standard that God delivered unto us. To seal up the vision was the, was the fourth thing uh, of the prophecy. Not to, We think of seal up. We always think of closing something up. But literally, to seal it up means to put a mark on it so it's known, to put a seal upon it. We think of sealing as, as zipping a, a, a baggie. That way nothing can get in or get out. But when they spoke of a seal, they put a, talked about something giving credibility to it. He said, so when I gave this covenant to you through the propitiation that you knew under the law, he said, I'm establishing something with my authority. That's what he gave us right there in 1 John 
uh, chapter uh, 2. Then he said the third, the fourth, fifth thing, excuse me, or E, was the final thing was to anoint the most holy. Those fell off. Because folks, you know all those other things? They got real good at it. They did. They, they got good at, at maintaining the, the dietary laws. They got good at, at, at keeping the, the Sabbaths and keeping the holy days. They, they got real good at all those things, even when Jesus showed up. But when that final thing came to them to anoint and to recognize and to establish the, 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 the most holy one, that Messiah, they couldn't see it. They got so good at all those other things that the one thing that really mattered, they failed at. Verse 25 in Daniel chapter 9 says this, Know therefore and understand that the going forth of the commandment to restore to and build Jerusalem under the Messiah, the prince, shall be given seven weeks and three score and two weeks. That's 62 weeks. And the streets shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. Seven weeks, you can write this down. You'll see why I'm talking about this here in a minute. Seven weeks equals 49 years. Okay? Seven times seven is? 49. So he speaks of weeks, he's speaking of, of periods or uh, uh, increments of seven. And so this book, though, you'll find this in, in Nehemiah 3 through 6. This was the period of time that started when the commandment was given to rebuild Jerusalem. And so that first seven weeks, the commandment started. Then he said, I also give you 62 weeks. And he said, that equals 434 years. Okay? This is the period of time from the rebuilding of the wall until the Messiah was to be revealed. And something happened. And somebody say praise God because something happened. Here's the bad news for them and the good news for you and I. The good news is that he's the propitiation even for the sins of us that represent that whole world. And it's verse 26 in Daniel chapter 9. And after three score and two weeks, 62 weeks, 434 years, plus the seven for the 49, the Messiah shall be cut off. King James says, but not for himself. Another translation says, after the period of 62 sets of seven, the anointing one will be killed, appearing not to have accomplished a single thing. Look, he, he saved others. He can't even save himself. Oh, come down from the cross and save yourself. Prophesy, you know, thousands of years in advance, right here in Daniel chapter 9. It says he's going to be cut off. He's going to be killed. It's going to appear that it was just for naught. Folks, just the unbelieving world didn't think that. What about his scattered disciples at that time? What just happened? They lost light of the fact that he had already promised and prophesied the things that would have to suffer. And so the people of the prince shall come and destroy the city, he says, and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and the end of war and desolations will be determined. In verse 27 of Daniel chapter 9, it says, And he, this is not speaking of Jesus, this is speaking of the Antichrist, not the Christ, it says he'll confirm the covenant with many for one week. There's another seven years. That's seven years of tribulation, the 70th week of Daniel. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice of the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of the abominations, he will make it desolate, even until the consummation or until the full allotted time of the Jews was be given and shall be uh, determined and, and shall be poured upon the desolate. And so whether you're pre-trib, post-trib, pre-millennial, post-millennial, I'm just telling you what the Bible says. I don't make this stuff up as I go. Between that 69th and 70th week, described in verse 27, there's a stop in the action. That's what John, 1 John 2, 2 is speaking about. It's the stop in the action. 
And so when he says he's not just a, uh, the propitiation for all of us that have been under this covenant forever, but as soon as we rejected the Messiah, the stopwatch stopped. Click. In the church age, the age of grace began. Also the propitiation for the whole world. Folks, we're actively being changed and transformed under a stopwatch. That's what it is. We're walking under an age of grace, under an allotment of time that, that I don't know how long that time is. You know, we can we can say, well, is it going to be two thousand years? Because it's you know, you got four and two, and add a thousand year millennial reign that equals seven. So that must be it. I, I couldn't tell you that. You know, you you do your own hokey math. I'm sticking with the the Bible math. I don't know that. But what I'm telling you is because the Messiah was cut off, click, because they rejected the full benefits of that propitiation, it extended that covenant to you and I. Not for the doctrine of conclusion, not for universalism, but extended the opportunity for those benefits to come to you and I. And so he, the propitiation of our sins, but also the sins of the whole world, is descriptive of this church age or this age of grace that began when he was cut off, when they rejected him, when he was crucified, and the extension or the invitation uh, to the benefits of sin pardon were presented to us. That's what they heard. And so when John's going to them, he's saying, listen, I'm telling you all these things. He said, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you that, 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 that he died so that you would sin not. But if you sin, he said, you have an advocate with the Father and, 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 and Jesus Christ, the righteous. He said, because of all those things, listen now, what's extended to you that, 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 that did not have that benefit before. Look what he's now given you by grace and mercy. He's, he, he's reached through a covenant. He's reached through time and space. He's transcended the law, and he's become the fulfillment for you and I. So there's no need for a lamb to be slaughtered on your behalf any longer. There's the day of atonement fulfilled at the cross of Calvary. What you once had to look forward in faith for is now fulfilled in Christ Jesus. So when he said it's finished, he said the, the righteous requirements of the law have been accomplished. That way when you draw from it, there's nothing that you have to do. You're saved by grace through faith, not of works, right. not of killing the right animal on the right day, not of works lest any man will be able to boast and say, listen, I've fulfilled, I've done all these things. I've, I, I've kept the law since my youth, lest any man should be able to boast. But you have been created now under good works. Not good works to get God to love you, but good works because God loved you. And he put something inside of you that is enabling you to do what you could not do under the weight and trying to bear those things yourself. Romans 11, uh, 11 and 12, speaking really of the rejection of Jesus, says this. It says, through their fall, he extended or provoked them to jealousy because now salvation has come to the Gentiles. It's been extended not only to you, but to the whole world. That's Romans 11, 11 through 12. Because of that, he became the propitiation for us, and it provoked them to jealousy. Who do they think they are? Well, they're the beneficiary of your rebellion. Who do they think they are? Well, they're the ones that God has adopted into the beloved. They're the ones that, that, that were not children, but now they are. They're the ones that have been brought into the sheepfold. They're the ones that have been brought into the sheep gate, and they, they, they become a part of the family of God, and even more so than that. They're not the, the friend of the bridegroom. 
They're the bride of Christ. And so that extension of propitiation, look how it was a game changer for you and I. Now the benefits of this propitiation are applied to one's life through faith in this redemptive act. Now think about 11, uh, Hebrews 11.6. Hebrews 11.6 says this. You know what? Without faith, it's what? Improbable. Impossible. Faith in what? Faith in just God? Why well, faith? There's a God. Is that enough? Without faith in what? What about Jesus? Well, I believe there's a Jesus. He was a beautiful story. The finished work of what Jesus Christ did upon the cross of Calvary. I'm having faith in the propitiation. And what Jesus Christ did was a, was a sacrifice for me, for not only for me, but for all those that love me. Faith, it's impossible to please him. For he that comes to God, what? Must believe. Not just be included. Not just have an accident happen, but he must believe that he is, that he's rewarded of those that Seek him. Folks, here's what happened. You know some universalism? This was a universal offer that requires a personal response. He gave a universal offer that requires a personal response. So what Jesus is as our advocate, our propitiation, was to guarantee access, but not necessarily to guarantee entrance. I want to say that again. What Jesus did was he guaranteed for whosoever will access to him, but not necessarily entrance. The reason I say that, he said, if any man desires to try to enter any other way, what is that person? He's a thief. He's a robber. We can only enter one way unless we want the door who is Christ Jesus. And so here's the question tonight for you. How do you know if you move from access to entrance? How do you know? How do you know if you're just not just a good, moral, religious person versus somebody that's actually had answers? I'm glad you asked that question because it's answered right here in 1 John chapter 10, verse 3. He said, Hereby we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Now, do we have commandment keepers in here? Is that a yes? How do I know that? Like it's legal, it seems like it's not. Well, don't fear. He said, We know that we know him. If we keep his commandments, this is the manner in which we, that's what he said, this is the manner in which we know. Now I want to give you what that means. Here's by how you know it. It really means you are able to come to a personal and first-hand knowledge of it. If you want to come to a personal knowledge of it, if you know it's not, that you know that you know that you know, here's what it's going to be. Here's what's interesting. I was talking to the man this past uh, Friday night on the streets, and he considers himself an atheist, he considers himself all these things. And so he asked me a question, and he said, well, he said, really? He said, how do you really know that there's a God? And he was waiting for me to give him something, you know, well, because, you know, I saw this box and all this. I said, because I personally know him, and I can with him every day. And he kind of looked at me, and he said, you said the only thing I can't argue with. Because that's real to me. And so, folks, what he does, he said, this is the way that the argument is done. You won't have an argument when it becomes so intimate and so personal to you. And really, the verse to say first when we studied in, in verse 6 of chapter 1, it says, If you say you have fellowship with him, but you walk in darkness, he says, You're, you're a liar. You walk in sin and compromise. You're lying and you do not the truth. And so it's just the flip side of that first verse. And so the way that you come to be confident and have first hand knowledge of God's humanity 
is not by manifesting by what somebody thinks or somebody says. It's not by the church or the ministry in. It's not by uh, whether your mama or your grandma said that you were saved or some preacher told you to. It will be revealed in how you actually live your life. That's where it's at. You'll know that you know him by how you actually live your life. I had a guy come up, I think I said this with you guys a week or so ago. He came up and said, hey, listen, I just want to tell you. He had beer on his breath, he had his eyes, he had a drink in his hands, with some things and things around his neck. He said, listen, I want to tell you, man, I really appreciate what you guys are doing out here. And you know, if I've heard that once, I've heard it 20 million times at least. Appreciate what you guys are doing out here. He said, I'm a, I'm a Christian too. And I'm thinking, hmm, so I'm flipping, I'm about to go to 1 John 1 and 6. So you're a Christian, you're walking up, and you're lying. So I'm open my Bible up. He said, no, you don't have to do that. He said, man, he said, really, I probably don't have to do that. And so I grabbed this guy, got my head around shoulder, and I said, I know you're sincere. I said, but I want to break the news to you. There ain't no way you're going to be proud of that. He looked at me, and I said, because if you did, you would have been living. I said, I live in what I do, because I know what he says. I know what he expects of you. Folks, they can say you know it, but the way you know it is if your life is reflecting it. You might be able to recite it, you might be able to quote it, but you don't really know it until you've been changed and transformed by what it says. And so this is the manner, he said, in which we can be confident that we know him. Know him is the perfect, indicative, active word in Greek. And it's the same word for intimacy or personal knowledge. And so it means contract. So uh, it means personal intimate contact. Don't you remember, it's the same word. When I, the reason I gave you the, the perfect, uh, perfect indicative active. If you remember we talked about in chapter 1, where John said, listen, the things that we have seen, what? We're still seeing. The things that we have heard, we're still hearing. The things that we touched, we're, we're still touching. That was the present indicative active. In other words, it's, it's not something I said, you know, I remember that in, in youth camp back when I was 12 years old. And I walked in and prayed the prayer and I lived like the devil ever since. But man, I remember back then. Man, God must be so proud of what I did 40 years ago. He's going to look at me even though I've been a wretched person for the last 40. And he's going to say, well done, my good faithful servant. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever man throws, that's surely also reap. If we continue to sin after we come to the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more a sacrifice by sin. The fire of the judgment awaits his adversaries. We think for a minute that God is some buffoon that we back into some magical coil because we should have to gather all the relevance. No, it's the perfect, it's the indicative, it's active. He said, I have no, I have known him, and I still know him. I've walked with him, and I still walk with him. I've been saved, but you know what? I'm still saved. I've been set free, and I'm still set free. It's not some deep experience I had 20 years ago and I'm living off the walls. Exactly. His mercies are new every morning. My freedom is new every morning. My joy is new every morning. And sorrow may be different. Not the joy comes every single morning. What I was, I still am. And you know what? Here is my salvation when I first believed. That's what you said. You're going to know it. Why? Because it's going to be present. It's going to be perfect. It's going to be active. It's still going to be going even to the uttermost. That's how we know whether or not we know him. This is the manner in which you will be able to walk in complete confidence and be in right standing with God is if you continue to walk reflective of a righteous relationship with him. That's what believers look like. Believers walk with him. How can two walk together except they agree? We've got to walk in agreement with what he said in his word. I've hidden the word in my heart. 
And I won't sin against you. And I won't walk somewhere where you don't walk. Folks, this is interesting. Let me give you something real quick. Because John addresses three things in this one verse. Look what he said. It says the first portion he focuses on the inward intention of the heart as revealed by the character of the individual. That's what he said. He focused on the inward intention. Then he continues on to the natural. And he uses that word that we picked up in chapter 2, verse 1. It was that word, if. Is that what he said? Look what he said. Let me read it to you. He said, here's how we know him if we keep his commandments. Remember that verse up here? He says, I say to you that you sin not, but if any man sin. You remember what that word literally meant? It meant a conditional possibility based upon personal decisions or acts of will. And so if you sin, if you enter into that, he says you have a way out. But then he says, listen, if you do that, he was basically saying your inward intent must be coupled by your outward action. And so verse 1 said, if you sin, if you yield to the conditional possibility that exists because of sin nature, he said, know that you have not even thought of Jesus Christ the righteous. And verse 3 says, if you are in an ongoing permanent relationship with Christ, then you've been extended the ability to walk in accordance with a new condition. And so the condition that brought us out, conditional upon repentance of dead works and faith towards God, allows us to walk in righteousness. The same if, the conditional, because now Christ is inside of me, it causes me to have the ability to be holy as he is holy. That's the condition that I'm now in. The condition I had before was strictly by grace that God's divine influence had brought me to that place. He provided me an if, but now he provides me an if to be holy, to live above sin, to walk in righteousness towards him. Why? Because now I've removed myself from who I was, and I'm, being a follower. I'm a follower of Christ in the now. And so before your tendency was towards sin, but now your tendency is towards righteousness. Used to it would have been, I got so mad. Now it's, man, used to it would have been, but now it's heaven. Used to it, I would have balled my fist up and just work over. Now I just, man, I just want to pray for you. Used to it, I'd say, God, get him now. I'd say, God, just forgive him. Used to it, I'd say, you're going to get yours. Now I say, God, I, I bless those that curse me. I love my enemy. I pray for those. Who despitefully use me? Why? Because now I've got a new condition. I've got the conditional possibility of being able to overcome. Romans six sixteen says, "Do you not realize that you become a slave to whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living." Propitiation or Jesus bearing the weight of sin creates the potential in every one of us to be holy. So he did. He created the potential. So when he says, be holy, he didn't wave some carrot in front of your face that you couldn't get. Why? Because he's the propitiation for those Jew sins, but not only theirs, but for the whole world, for you and I. We can be holy, not ceremonially, but we can be holy because we're sanctified. Father, sanctify them by thy word. Thy word is truth. He's perfected forever those that are sanctified. It changed everything. And how do I know it? Why? Because I'm free. And I'm still free. I got saved. And I'm still saved. 
This is demonstrated in keeping his commandments, obeying what he said or directed. This is not legalism, folks. It's called life. There's where the freedom is. Free from the things that once encumbered my ability to love, pray, and obey God. Think about Romans 29. Here's what that propitiation for the sins of the whole world, and not just their sins, but everybody's sins. Here's how we know. He said there's no condemnation for those which are in Christ Jesus. Now, listen to the if factor. Who, or if, you don't walk after the flesh, but after the spirit. In other words, if you keep on knowing, there ain't no condemnation. And folks, I got news for you. If you don't keep following that, you're going to feel condemned. You're, you're going you're to find the weight of sin right back up on your shoulders. Why? Because you're putting yourself in the conditional possibility that if you sin, that's what you're going to do. The law is written like Jesus made me free. So you say, made me free from the sin, the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, and he condemned sin in the flesh. I love verse 4, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. That's what we get. We get the righteous portion of the law. You know what the righteous portion of the law was? The standard, which was Christ Jesus. The ability to say no to sin. That's what right, the righteousness of the law was. It was seeing the standard and him saying, listen, if he's lifted up, then he'll draw men to him. And I've been crucified with Christ. And the life that I now live, I live by faith. Why? Because without faith, here's how it ties together. It's impossible to please him. But I diligently seek him, so what is it? I'm seeking with him in the heavenly places. For after the righteousness of the law by faith, he walked not in the flesh, but after the spirit. Verse 5. For they that are after the flesh... All they can do is mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Folks, what does 1 John 2, 3 say? What pleases God? Obeying his commands. Those that are in the flesh cannot obey God's commands. They cannot walk in faithfulness to who God is. But but you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so that the Spirit of God dwells inside of you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit, Christ is none of his. First John 2, 3. Hereby we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. You know what it is to keep? It literally means to guard as a watchman. That's what it is. If I keep his commandments, it doesn't just mean I adhere to something. Okay, I'm following I'm keeping it. It means that I'm guarding that thing like a watchman. Folks, do you do that in your walk with the Lord? Do you guard those things like a watchman? You know, what do we see? Ezekiel 3 and 33. He said, I made you a watchman over Israel. He said, but if you don't warn the wicked from the wickedness of the ways and they die in their wickedness, he said, their blood will be upon your hands. Now, folks, the first wicked person that we need to warn is us. So what about when we're convicted of sin and we don't say, whoa, the Holy Spirit's inside of me putting up a red flag. I need to warn myself. What happens? Our own blood is on our own hands. Why? Because we've failed to keep his commandments. And he says uh, in, in Matthew 26, 41, he says, watch, be a watchman, watch and what? Pray so that what? You won't enter into temptation. You won't find yourself in that conditional place of walking back into sin because what the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. Watch your guard. That's our part. Pray. It puts our dependence back upon him so that he will not say 
and we have fellowship with him, but we're really entering into temptation. Folks, a commandment is that which he has charged, that which he's commanded, that which he's proposed. And so how do you know that we know him? Because it's simple. I do what he said. I follow after the precepts of God. Not out of a legal obligation, but out of a spiritual transformation. That's just who I am. Why are you so nice? That's just who I am. Why do you love people? That's just who I am. Why are you faithful? That's just who I am. Folks, shouldn't that be the declaration of us as believers? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord God.